You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Today's reading comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of mustard seed, you could say to the smallberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to you indeed, Father. Will you guys pray with me? Uh, God, we are convinced that your word is true. And uh, because you have given us your word, we can gather around truth. We can sing truth. We can read truth. We can confess truth and profess truth. Um, Lord, we are not like the world pining and longing for truth. We know truth. Your word is true. We worship you. We pray that this time would be dedicated to truth, that you would use us to form us into the image of Jesus, and the result would be your glory and our joy. We love you. We praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome. My name is Kyle. I'm a pastor here at Christ Church, and it's genuinely a joy for me to be with you today. Um, if you're visiting with us, uh, we are going through the book, the book of Luke, and we've been going through the book of Luke for a very long time. We find it valuable and helpful to, to pick a book of the Bible and preach through that book chapter after chapter, verse after verse, to try to understand what God intended for us to know and learn and, and experience and believe and trust and 
and obey as a result of his word given to us um, through um, so many people and so many men. And so this chapter uh, that you just heard read is going to conclude quite a long chapter. So chapters and chapters ago, we were told that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. And what that means is he is now walking towards his death. And so for the last few, uh, I'd say few sermons, for the last many sermons, we have been going through time and again, these rebukes against the Pharisees, these teachings. Sometimes it's a direct rebuke against the Pharisee. Other times it is a story that Jesus is telling, but he is exposing the pride and the sin of the Pharisees. And our text this evening is a transitional text. So we are moving away from um, this rebuke of the Pharisees into Jesus now more explicitly talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God that is coming. It's a transitional section this evening, and it's going to connect the themes that he's been talking about, the things of pride, of self-righteousness, of hardened hearts, different things the Pharisees have been exemplifying. Um, It's going to talk about those things, but it's also uh, going to point forward to a new kingdom um, ahead, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of humility, a kingdom of faith that makes well all who see Jesus correctly, like the Samaritan that you just heard read read about. But not only those who see things correctly have true faith and are healed, but those who do not are judged. Um, and walk away, though their bodies might be healed, though they seem they're okay, they are not well. And so Jesus makes this transition in his teaching by turning his attention to the disciples, okay? So that's what was said at the first. If you want to open your Bibles, chapter 17, we're just going to walk through Luke this evening. So he makes this transition um, to clarify what it means to follow him in a new kingdom. So Jesus is now calling us to follow him. Here Luke makes it clear that he's no longer talking to the broad crowds. He's no longer speaking to the Pharisees, but he's talking to his disciples, to the ones that he had chosen to be with him, who had been with him from the beginning. As I read this over and over again this week, it kind of felt like, you know, when your mom, when you were young, was yelling at your sibling and you're over there like, (laughs) yeah, that's good. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, he did do that. Yep, she did do that. But then all of a sudden she turns at you and you're like, okay, what's going on, you know? And so then you get told off for your part, for, for what you played, the role you played in the issue. I kind of felt like that's what Jesus was doing in this section, is this to make sure that his disciples understood that they are not off the hook. He has been spending a lot of time rebuking the Pharisees, but his disciples are not off the hook. Christ wastes no time in clarifying what it means to be a follower of his, a disciple of his in our text this evening, to obey the master of the upside down kingdom that he is ushering in. He uses in our section this evening um, to describe how a disciple of his, he, he teaches us what we should think and live like, how they should view sin, what, what repentance and forgiveness is, what obedience and faith is, how they should be taking responsibility for those around them with the mindset of an unworthy servant one that looks to Jesus not only for what he can do for them, but for what he has already done for them um, and who he is and what he's accomplishing on the cross. Christ is not establishing another worldly kingdom dominated by power and pomp, by the heart and the mind of the Pharisees. He is ushering in a new kingdom that's marked by repentance, by faith, by forgiveness, by obedience, character traits that the Pharisees had missed 
all together, completely. And so that's what we're going to do this evening. Um, and this, this is, there's so much good in these passages. There's just so much truth, stuff that we can just take directly and obey. But I believe there's also an intentional weaving of themes through this passage. So I'm going to do my best this evening to try to do both, encourage us from God's word to obey God's word, but also to see the, the masterful mind of Christ as he weaves truths through, um, through this section of our, of our passage. So I'm going to do that by, by using three points this evening evening. Pay attention to yourself. That's a command, and that's our first point. The next is unworthy servant, and the third is your faith has made you well. So let's, let's, let's get into Luke chapter 17. Pay attention to yourself. So the last month or so of Luke we've been, has just been a string of stories, like I mentioned, of teachings exposing the sin of some, many of the Pharisees. And you would think that in this moment, Jesus has been doing so much teaching, you would think in this moment he would just point to the Pharisees and then point to the disciples and say, see what they're doing? Don't. Just do the opposite. Just stop. Like they're doing the wrong thing. They're wrong. Don't be like them. You think that would be an easy way for Jesus to end this long string of rebukes against the Pharisees, but that's not what Jesus does. Jesus knows that his disciples have the same tendencies, the same desires of the Pharisees. They have the same sin problem that would cause them to twist his words just like the Pharisees had twisted the law given to them by God through Moses. Instead of pointing a finger saying, just don't do that, he exposes where the problem truly stems from. And let's read it again if you, if you have your Bibles open. We'll, it's in Luke chapter 17, verse 1. We'll unpack it. And he said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, he were cast into the sea, that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the same day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So honestly, I think, and I, you've probably heard a, a preacher say this, I think the Pharisees often get a really bad rap. And I'm not saying that in terms of Jesus' rebukes. His rebukes were well-founded. They were absolutely lovers of money. They were absolutely lovers and seekers of respect. They were whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside, but that's not how it started. You guys know the history of Pharisees and where that comes from? One of the resources that I read this week said this. Uh, this is a quote. I'm going to read it. It says, Pharisaism essentially was a lay movement, which just meant normal people, just normal people in the community, not Levites, not priests, a lay movement dedicated to obeying the Torah in daily life. The Pharisees valued the Torah, which is the law or instruction, a term implied to the first five books of the Old Testament, above all else. They believed the truths of the Torah were timeless, requiring only proper application in the midst of changing times. To that end, the Pharisees developed a complex oral tradition designed to specifically, in detail, obey the law applied to every circumstance, end quote. There's not a whole lot there I can disagree with. When I, when I think about why the Pharisees started what, what they were out to do, there's not much I can disagree with in, in their hearts and desires and minds. So what went wrong? How did a movement that was dedicated completely, just sprung up out of the hearts of people, dedicated to completely obeying God's word, turn so bad that by the time Jesus came on the scene, he was just openly rebuking them constantly over and over again for their sinful hearts? What went wrong? Sin. Sin went wrong. 
The result of, this is just the result of sin run rampant in the hearts and minds of people when we refuse to pay attention to ourselves like Jesus commanded, when we refuse to consider how our words and how our sinful actions are affecting those around us, when we refuse to do the hard work of rebuking each other and receiving rebuke from one another, when we ignore our need for ongoing and steady repentance and forgiveness, when we become quick to judge others and slow to pay attention to ourselves, slow to forgive. We leave the wisdom of God and begin to operate in our own wisdom, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the Pharisee. We minimize our need for God and we maximize our efforts and what they can accomplish. We minimize the people around us and we maximize ourselves. So in this moment, Jesus turns to his disciples the 12 that had been with him since the beginning, the 12 that he is going to leave the work of building this new kingdom on earth with the Holy Spirit to, and he commands them not to not be like the Pharisees because they're already like the Pharisees. He commands them to pay attention to themselves. That's the middle. I think it's verse three. That's right there. That's the command. Pay attention to yourself. Instead of using the case built against the Pharisees as an example not to follow, Jesus tells his disciples, view yourselves rightly. See yourselves rightly. View others rightly. View sin and its deathly effects rightly. View me, Jesus, and faith in me rightly. That's what Christ calls them to. In verse 1, Christ is calling his disciples to an extremely, extremely high standard. Do you feel that weight? that extremely high standard that he's giving his disciples, a high standard of awareness. He acknowledges that temptation to sin is absolutely going to come in this life. Every human feels it. It's part of living in a fallen world, but he makes it extremely clear that his followers are not to be where that temptation comes from. His followers are not to contribute to the sin of other people. It would be better for them if a giant rock, this is a millstone, I mean, it's such a crazy teaching from Jesus because that rock would crush the person first. So it's like, imagine a crushed person then being thrown into the ocean. That's what he's saying. It's, 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 it's Midas, I'm sorry, thrown into the ocean and die. Then for them, it's better than for them to cause someone who is newer in the faith or doesn't have faith. A little one is what he's saying here. It's better for them to have that fate than to cause someone to stumble. It's the first piece of hyperbole that Jesus is use, uh, uses in our passage, like just a crazy statement um, that's this evening that he uses. What is Jesus doing here? Why would he use such a horrible, violent, honestly, kind of like ridiculous example? Why would he use that? How, how could it be better if you just ask the question for a person to be dead than to be unaware of how their lives are affecting others? That's essentially what Jesus is saying. Christ is being so intentional in this section. I think this is just such a generous teaching on sin. This is such a holistic teaching on sin and its effects in our lives. He's commanding us to pay attention to ourselves. We need to view ourselves rightly, not like the Pharisees who had an inflated view of themselves that allowed them to judge others easily. We should judge ourselves easily is what he's saying. You should put yourself under the highest scrutiny so that we have the loving ability to keep those around us even from sinning. We are so aware of sin and its effects in our lives, the things that we are struggling with, that we can then look around and help others stay away from sin, keep others away from sin. We should be so aware of sin and its effects that we understand how our lives and our actions are not only affecting us, but those around us. Why? 
Jesus teaches and Jesus believes that sin is deadly. It's deadly. It kills all that it touches, especially relationships. When I am in sin, my actions cloud the beauty and wisdom of God from the one I am interacting with, the person I am interacting with. When I harbor bitterness, when I harbor hatred, when I harbor lust or unforgiveness or jealousy or anxiety and so on, my interactions with those around me, they experience the sin that is in my life. They are affected. They stumble because of my sin. I'm called and commanded to pay attention to myself. Christ, in talking about it being better to be cast into the sea, is highlighting the terrible effects of the Pharisees' carelessness on themselves and then on Israel at large, especially in how they handled their own sin. They had turned God's law into a stumbling block for anyone who would draw near to them or anyone who would seek to draw near to God. They were whitewashed tombs. They were pretty on the outside, dead on the inside. The burdens they preached were not the burdens that they themselves sought to carry, and that allowed sin and death to reign in them and therefore those around them. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts and minds were far from the true God. This is not the upside-down kingdom way. This is not the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. Disciples of Christ see sin for what it is. It's deadly. And they pay attention to themselves to the point that they are aware of their own sin and its causes and how it causes others to struggle. This is an intense level of awareness. This is a, it's a quick, short four verses, but it is calling the disciples to a very high standard. We're to pay attention, not only to ourselves, but to those around us. And he doesn't stop there, right? He goes on and he says, okay, and then while paying attention, if you see a brother sinning, We are to go to them and rebuke them, calling them to repentance and then stand ready to forgive. Even when this person sins countless times against us in the same day, we're called to forgive. If they repent and turn asking for forgiveness, Christ says, we must forgive them. We need to be clear in this point, however, the assumption is that this person is also a believer. He wants Forgiveness. He is looking, he is repenting, and he is also hearing the same command of Jesus to pay attention to themselves, to view their sin as deadly and destructive, to practice true repentance and faith that leads to sanctification. This is not just be bowled over, be knocked over by people who are sinning against you and just keep, keep forgiving them. This is Christian community. This is new kingdom community that Christ is describing. The battle against sin, it starts with you individually. Obeying Jesus, but it shouldn't stop there. It should extend to everyone around you. That's what he's teaching. Jesus died to crush the damning effects of sin. And he is teaching here now how to eradicate the ongoing effects of sin. He has saved you. He has freed you from hell if you have placed your faith in him. But sin goes on. And so he's teaching us how to kill it. A church that takes sin and its eradication seriously is a church that takes love seriously. It's a church that takes joy seriously and peace seriously and so on. It's a church that takes God seriously. Jesus teaches that it's better to be dead than to allow sin to reign because sin kills everything that it comes in contact with. A person who is so engulfed in sin that they ignore those they are causing to struggle is a person who is given over to death already. It's already reigning in their life. But Christ is not the king of the kingdom of death. He's not ushering in the kingdom of death. He's ushering in the kingdom of life. So he commands his disciples to live lives that kill 
sin, that see it correctly. Lives that rebuke, lives that repent, lives that forgive once and stand ready to forgive a thousand times because this is what Jesus is like. This is what our king is like. And this was too much for the disciples. (laughs) Upon hearing this, they're just like, wait, what? What do you mean? Could you please repeat that? They, they, it almost sounds like a noble request that they have. Would you increase our faith? But what they're actually saying is that you have not equipped us to do the thing that you have commanded us to do. Christ responds with another ridiculous saying. This is what he says. And the Lord said, this is verse 6, If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree right here, Go be planted in the sea and it would obey you. More faith was not needed. An understanding of faith was needed. Christ's response begs the question, do you understand what Christ grants you in faith, what he has given you and gifted you in faith? Do you understand the sanctifying power of Jesus? It's not impossible to do what he has commanded us to do in verses 1 through 4. Sin brings about death at the bottom of the sea. Right? That's what Jesus gave us the picture of. That's what sin does, brings about death at the bottom of the sea. But faith in Jesus brings about the ability for life to thrive in the middle of the sea. Right? That you could take this mulberry tree and plant it in the most ridiculous place you can think of. Okay? So the sea in the ancient Near East was a place of death and chaos and confusion. It was uncontrollable. It was, it was nothing could grow there. Nothing was safe there. It was a picture. It's kind of like darkness and light. It was a picture in the ancient Near East of something that is uncontrollable and terrifying. And Jesus says, faith the size of a mustard seed could put life in the middle of chaos. Sin brings death. Faith brings life. So when Jesus said it would be better for you to be dead at the bottom of the sea, he meant it. But when he says that faith can cause life in the sea and dead places in the midst of chaos, he was highlighting that his disciples had no clue what he was doing for them. They really, and it makes sense. The spirit had yet to come. Like this is a process that he's bringing us on, but they had no clue the power of faith. They had no clue the life resurrecting power that Christ held. They did not need more faith because God, because God keeps no good thing from his people. If you are in him, if you are his disciple, then he has given you all that you need for life and godliness in, in the faith that he's gifted you. The disciples didn't need more faith. In this moment, they needed to understand their faith more clearly and respond with obedience. They needed to obey what Jesus had commanded. And that brings us to our next point and the next story that Jesus tells, the story of the unworthy servant. So this is our next point. And I need to be clear that honestly, there is, you cannot separate Christian obedience and true Christian faith. They don't, you can't have one without the other. But how many times have you been confronted with God's word or with a hard scenario in your, in your life, and instead of responding with, yes, Lord, I'll obey you, Lord, as you command, Lord, I'm an unworthy servant, you say, increase my faith. It's too difficult. You say, oh, my goodness, Lord, uh, it's too much. Would you increase my faith? When a Christian says things like, I am struggling with my faith, what we are really implying is that Christ has not given us what we need in this moment to obey him. The faith he has gifted us is sufficient for the moment we find ourselves in. Do you believe that? I don't like what I'm hearing or experiencing right now. So the problem must be with God. It's definitely not with me. The issue must be with his word. It's it's not my life. 
It must be, he's misunderstanding. He's not seeing this situation correctly. It cannot be my sin or the sins of others that is causing this. It must be my faith. We accuse Jesus of being just like the Pharisees, placing loads on his people that he himself is unwilling or unable to bear. That's just not true of the master that we serve. That's not true of him. The disciples did not lack the faith to obey. They lacked the desire to obey. Has that ever been true of you? Their understanding of the new kingdom did not include humility. It did not include costly forgiveness. It did not include repentance and sacrifice. If they understood what their faith in Jesus meant, they would not be discouraged by the call to put sin to death and help others do the same like we just talked about. They were not clear on what faith in this new master fully provided, fully produced. They were not to be the new religious leaders that they understood the role. So they were understanding Jesus is ushering in this new kingdom. We're going to be the new leaders. We're going to be new in charge. And uh, we're going to be just like the Pharisees, but different. And Jesus said, no, you're not. So let's read this story again, and then we'll finish talking about it and move on to our next point. Will any of you, this is verse 7, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the surface, you just read this this story, it comes across really cold. Right? It comes across just really matter of fact. Jesus is just teaching, you know, you're just an unworthy servant. Why don't you just keep on serving? And when you think you can't serve anymore, serve some more. And then when you're about to fall asleep, then you can eat and be refreshed. I've been the victim of bad thinking like this. My, my, there's a season in my life where I just thought God just viewed me like a worthless pawn. All he was doing, he was just after his glory and worship. So I was just this unworthy servant. Yes, Lord, where should I go, Lord? I did not view the master correctly. I did not understand whose table I was serving. See, Christ is the one who removed every stumbling block. Is that true? He paid attention to himself. This is the master. He did not count equality with God something to be held onto, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a what? A servant. More than that, he kept himself perfectly sinless. He rebuked us, called us to repentance. He forgave us in a moment of our salvation, and he has forgiven us countless times since. Jesus did not only obey his own commands in verses 1 through 4, but he died that you might be able to obey them as well. Jesus did not only obey his commands in verses 1 through 4, but he died that you might be able to obey them as well. The master you served removed the stone from your neck and put it on his own neck. He took the death our sin deserved so life could be experienced in its place. He is the object of our faith. He is the firm foundation. He is the soil that's in the middle of the sea that allows life to thrive in dead, chaotic places. That's Jesus. He he is the firm foundation. He is the one who has given you your life and the faith the size of a mustard seed does all of this. 
allows for all of this to be true of you. The disciples had yet to understand what faith in Jesus really meant. And that's true of many of us. That's true of me so often. I need to be reminded. So again, I ask Christ Church, what is true faith? We professed it this evening, but I want you to listen to the answer of our profession of faith again tonight in light of the master who did not account equality with God, something to be grasped, but also became a servant. Okay, so let's, let's, with, with this truth, with these thoughts in mind, let's hear again the answer to what true faith is. True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything revealed in God's word is true, it's also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Praise be to God, the author of our salvation. What a, what a profession. See, true faith does not waver because Christ does not waver. You get that connection True faith does not waver because Christ does not waver. True faith does not change because Christ does not change. If you are in Christ, then you do not need more faith. That's what Jesus is teaching the disciples. Listen to this from Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You did not contribute to your faith. You did not build it. You did not secure it. You received it. It was a gift given to you by God. We add nothing to it. Our kind master secured it. And then he thrust it upon us in love. What a good God. What a good master we serve. What a glorious table that we set. What beautiful fields we plow. What a wonderful flock that we tend. We are so unworthy, yet here we are serving and knowing and being in the presence of the God of the universe. If this is all true, then how should we then understand seasons where we struggle with our faith? Seasons of sadness and brokenness, seasons where it just seems like God is not with us. When obedience seems impossible and burden seems too heavy to bear, seasons when it seems like we have lost our faith. If faith is a gift from God, then we can no longer say that we are struggling with our faith unless we have not yet to receive faith. And that's an important question to ask yourself. If your life in Christ is marked by doubting Jesus and not knowing if he loves you and cares about you, not knowing if these words are true, not knowing if you are secure in him, not knowing if he is worthy of your life in, in light of what the world is enticing you with, then that might be the right question to ask. Do I have true faith? Do I have real faith? Is the, is the, is the stone still around my neck or has Christ removed that stone and my faith has planted life where chaos used to reign? That's a good question to ask. But unless you have done that, if you are his disciples, then the problem is not your faith. Likely we are forgetting the goodness of the master that we serve and how unworthy we are to be in his presence. It is an us problem, friends, brothers and sisters. It is never, hear this, it is never a God problem. He does not make mistakes. 
He does not lie. He is not shifty. He is not messing with your life and forgetting what he did yesterday and trying to make up for it today. Everything God does, including gifting you with faith, is an intentional act from a sovereign, perfect ruler of the universe. It is always an us problem. It is never a God. I don't just mean you, but I mean a human problem, like a captive who begins to sympathize with their captor, sin and the worries of life cause us to forget God's goodness so often. Forget the power and love of God. And that is why Jesus commanded that we pay attention to ourselves, that we pay attention to each other. We must. It's for your joy. The very command of Jesus that causes the disciples to doubt in verses 1 through 4 was meant to be the solution for their doubt. Does that make sense? They're doubting, and he commands them to pay attention to themselves because when they're paying attention to themselves and they're paying attention to the gospel, they're paying attention to the master, then they're realizing that this doubt is unfounded. He is always true. His words are always true. Sin is always the culprit. Okay, and again, I'm not just saying you, if you are struggling, if you have a issue in your life, it is your sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God is good and this world is broken. And that is what we must preach to ourselves often. If it is your sin causing a hard season in your life, then confess it and repent of it. Cut it off. Pluck it out. And if it is sin that has been committed against you, then rebuke your brother or sister and stand ready to forgive them. The blood of Christ is the antidote to sin and its long-lasting grip. We need to take that seriously and help each other as we press on into secure faith and out of wavering faith that is constantly tossing us to and fro that feels more like chaos than life, that feels more like death than life. That is not the faith that Christ has purchased us. This clarity matters because the faith he has gifted you is endless in its ability to sustain you. He's such a good God. It's endless in its ability to fill you with joy, to keep you till the end. He saved you and he holds you. We are unworthy servants, but because of Christ, we are adopted. We don't only serve at his table, we now sit at his table. That's the character of the master you serve. When we struggle, we are at his table. When we mourn, we are at his table. When we suffer and doubt, we are at his table. Whether we feel like it or not, it's true. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never banish us from his presence. He will never keep good things from us. He might discipline us, but only for our good. Our struggles should be viewed in light of God's goodness. When we question, we should pay attention to ourselves. We don't need more faith. We need to rightly understand our faith and seek to obey God every moment of every day. Paul says it like this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through them, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our status is justified. Our, 
Our peace with God, our access to the grace of God, our rejoicing in the hope of glory to come are all because of the faith we have been given. Everything we experience in life, whether good or bad, should be understood in light of that truth. That helps us rejoice in our suffering. That helps us rejoice when our lives are going well and we have all that we need. This is how we rejoice. This is how we press on as unworthy servants. We're so unworthy, but we have been made worthy. What a truth that helps you on a hard Wednesday. Our hope will not put us to shame because our hope is in Christ. Even suffering is redeemed for the one who views themselves correctly and views their master correctly. Those are really difficult things to do. We need each other to do that. Problems never with our faith. It is our faith that makes us well, is what the Bible teaches. It's faith that makes us well. So this is is the sentence, pay attention to yourself, you unworthy servant, because your faith has made you well. And that brings us to our last point. Let's talk about faith making us well. Your faith has made you well. So we sang this song a couple weeks ago, so I couldn't ask Nathan to, to sing it again. But how does Horatio Spafford pin the lyrics for the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, after losing all his worldly belongings in a terrible fire, and all four of his daughters are killed in a shipwreck, like within the span of a year. What does it mean to be made well by our faith? Bringing all we have been discussing this evening together. After Christ exposes, um, I think that's what this, this teaching does. Like I said, I think there's so much individual truth to be found in these, but I do think there's so much uh, uh, intentionality in the way Luke has put these things together. After Christ exposes his disciples' misunderstanding of faith and of obedience, he comes across 10 lepers who cry out for healing. They cry, what? Master, is what they say. Master, will you heal us? And he gives them a command to go and show themselves to the priests. And as they go, their physical ailments are healed in a moment. So what these ten understood as their greatest need was provided for in a moment by Jesus. Their discomfort completely removed. Their wounds were healed and their status in society was restored. They could go home to be with their families again. They could go worship again. They could go buy bread again. But Jesus teaches us that only one of them was made well. Only one of them was made well. All of them were welcomed back in the world. All of them had access to society, but only one of them was made well. Only one recognized their true need and went and bowed at the feet of Jesus, their master. Only one saw Christ for who he was and recognized how unworthy they were to receive the healing that they had received. It it happened, and in a moment they thought, why did this happen? This is substantial. I don't deserve this. I need to go back and talk to the one who has healed me. The terrible worldly circumstances of 10 people were solved in an instant, but only one had their soul made well. This is faith. This is the picture that Christ is calling his disciples to understand. The person saw themselves correctly, the one who went back to Jesus. They understood their need correctly and bowed correctly at the feet of their master. The faith that the disciples above asked for more of was not true faith because it did not understand the power of Jesus. It did not understand what it could do for them. The faith that the disciples above asked for more of was not true faith because they didn't know rightly the master. And again, there's a debate we could talk about were they really saved at this time or not, but all I do know is that Jesus was teaching them what it means to have true faith. 
they, the disciples, were like the nine other lepers. They were desiring worldly comfort. They wanted worldly relief, worldly ease. The radical view of sin and repentance and forgiveness that Jesus gave them was difficult. And their understanding was that faith in Jesus should make our lives better, should make it easier, should make it go well. Faith was seen as bringing worldly comfort, which is a tool, you can't miss this, which is a tool of the devil. That's a tool of Satan to keep us connected and tied to this life instead of being connected to the life to come. The life that's been given us in Jesus and the life that the kingdom is going to be ushering in, the kingdom that we're going to hear about more as Luke goes on. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus heals our greatest need, and those who have it understand it. The truth is no longer veiled. Our minds are no longer blinded by comfort and joy in this life. The veil has been removed, and we have been made well, and therefore it is well with our soul, with our eternity. Though difficulty may come, it is well. Though we have much, it is well. Though we have little, it is well. It saddens me. I mean, this is such a terrible teaching to consider 10 bodies healed and nine souls in hell. 10 bodies made well, nine souls left with the comforts of this world. The God of this world is crafty. He pushes us towards worldly comfort. He numbs our ability to experience the presence of God and the joy he has provided us through faith through faith that he's gifted us. His tactics make sin enticing. It's easy to become a Pharisee. Have you ever felt that slip in your life? The slow drip of sin, the slow slip into self-righteousness, the slow hardening of the heart can turn even the commands of God into a stone around the neck. He convinces us that elevating ourselves over others is the, wise, is the wise way, that ignoring our brother or sister's sin is the good way, that refusing to repent and forgive is the best, best path forward because it's the most comfortable path forward. That's the way of the world. The enemy convinces us that it is our faith that is lacking. That's what you need more of, that it's Jesus who has left us powerless and we are numbed into believing that healed bodies and easy lives are superior to a soul made well. Christ came to set us free from sin and its effects to cure us from the leprosy that rots our hearts. That's what's tricky. This internal sickness of sin is not seen by the world. Actually, it makes us accepted by the world, right? It's, it's easier for us in the world when we identify with our sin. A sin-filled heart does not exclude us from society in any way or cause us to live in caves outside of our cities like the leprosy of Christ's day did. But here's what it does. It excludes you from the master's table. It's better that a millstone is hung around your neck than we ignore our sin and the sin of others allowing its curse to kill us and everything around us. Do you believe that? Pay attention to yourself. 
you unworthy servant, because your faith has made you well. Those are our three points. That's my sentence in a sermon. So if you haven't been taking notes, you can just put the three points together, and that's what I believe this text teaches. But my prayer this week, as I sat at so many different tables and so many different coffee shops, was that all of us in this room would be struck by something from this text that would cause us to rely on Jesus more, that would cause us to view ourselves correctly, that would cause us to view Christ correctly and obey him. Some of us in this room need to pay attention to ourselves. We need to take some time to examine our hearts and our minds and ask the Lord to reveal our sin. Ask him to forgive us in sight to to give us insight and courage to confess that sin and to allow our faith in Christ to grow new life in dead places in our hearts. Some of us might need to reach out to someone and rebuke them and call them to repentance like we were commanded in verses one through four, forgiving them yet again for a sin committed against you, encouraging them yet again to remember Christ is genuinely who he says he is and he is better than we have yet to understand him to be. Some of us might need to call someone and ask for forgiveness or extend forgiveness that we have been withholding. Christ has commanded us to pay attention to these things and we need to obey him. The stone of these sins around your neck is a burden he died to remove from his church and we need to be willing to obey. God has been so kind and so patient, amen. He loves us so much and has done the impossible. We sit at his table But we must remember that we are unworthy servants as well. We must obey him. We must obey his word. And that is what a servant of his does. We spend all days in the field of our life, tending the flocks of our life. And when we come in tired and dirty, he calls us to continue to obey, to continue to pursue him, obey him, continue to repent and forgive, continue to put sin to death, trust him more because this is what the kingdom is like. This is what eternity is like apart from sin. It will be no more. It's a kingdom not like this world, a kingdom that values humility and forgiveness over status and pride. I'm getting to the end. Some of us might need to take a day to ponder and meditate on what it means that our faith has really made us well, that your faith has made you well, like Jesus said to the man who was healed. What does it mean that in Christ, all of the promises of God are yes to you, like he writes, like Paul writes in first, or 2 Corinthians 1.20, what does it mean that he has provided everything that you need, everything that you need for life and godliness? Like it says in 2 Peter 1.3, is it well? It is well with your soul, Christian. It is, it truly is. And the faith you need, all the love you need has been poured into you by the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus on the cross. It's yours. Turn, run to him. Thank him for what he has done. Cling to that truth. Your circumstances, this world, this life should no longer dictate those truths for you. If you are in Christ, your faith, all of you, your faith has made you well and it is well with your soul. Praise be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for Luke chapter 17. We thank you for the teaching of Jesus that turns his focus on us, that calls us to obey, that calls us to hate sin, that calls us to put it to death in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, that reminds us that we are unworthy, yet we serve a master who is completely worthy of all praise, all honor. In Christ, Lord, you have given us 
faith that makes us well. Would you help us to understand what that means? Would you help us to lean fully into that truth? Would you help us to put sin to death? And would you increase our joy as we increase our obedience and reliance on you? It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.